The framers were familiar with philosophers who thought about things like separation of powers, having an executive separate from the legislative and separate from the courts. But this notion of federalism, a national government with state governments coexisting, and that's the way I think of it, not as national government necessarily superior to the states, but they're coexisting with different responsibilities, but then sometimes overlapping responsibilities. Uh, and what you have in the United States, one way to think of this is that each of us uh, is both an American citizen and a state citizen. You, you have dual citizenship. Uh, you are a Kansas citizen and an American citizen, and you, you really have a part to play in the operations of two sovereigns within the same country. And that's actually pretty unusual when you look around the world. Uh, it is not, in my view, very much like the European Union, for example. That's a different kind of situation. Uh, so it's this notion of two, again, I don't like to say necessarily levels of government, but two spheres of government, national government that has certain responsibilities and state governments that historically have responsibility for virtually anything and everything they choose to get involved in. So I'll stop there with my definition. And I agree with, with, with everything that Steve just described. Uh, the U.S. system is relatively unique, or certainly was at the time. There are now a number of other systems that we would call federal in nature. The Canadian system is federal. The Australian system is federal. Uh, Great Britain is still working on federalism. I, I think they still don't quite understand it, if you ask people in Scotland at least. And uh, it's a model where I think every government that has something like federalism continues to struggle with it. If you look back historically, I think there was a real notion that there were two separate sovereigns. And there were some who even thought that they had a kind of total separation from each other. As history has evolved, I think we now think far more in terms of shared sovereignty or partnerships that exist. There are still some separate spheres of sovereignty for both the federal government and for the state government. Um, there's also a way in which the federalism ends up being a part of the national structure of our government. So that federalism is the reason why in the United States Senate every state is represented. Uh, Kansas has as much representation in the Senate as California or New York, and that's another way in which federalism is, is reflected in the system itself so that we recognize that there's a way of states not only having their own separate sphere, but also influencing the way in which the federal government acts. Okay. Bill, we'll begin with you for the, the second question, and that question would be, from your perspective, what matters should belong to the federal government and what matters should be reserved for the states? And asking it in terms of what should be reserved is a good way of focusing on that issue of sovereignty as such. Uh, I think in terms of the reserved segments, when you look at the national government, you think in terms of international relationships one way or another, um, international treaties. You think in terms of national security, national defense, international trade, currency. Uh, that's a, a unique responsibility of the national government. Um, international treaties, immigration is one that I would say is fundamentally the responsibility of the national government, not the state governments, even though that's certainly one where there's room for debate. 
Um, state governments, as Steve described it, state governments have sort of everything else in the sense of those things that are necessary to nurture a local population, and that can include uh, uh, public safety, uh, criminal law, the police, fire, prisons, for the most part, should be state responsibilities because much of crime is really uh, an issue that's handled at a state level. Um, education, although obviously there are some issues there, infrastructure, state and local government structure, function, the way in which the state government itself uh, is operated ought to be fundamentally a state responsibility. Uh, but again, as Steve sort of suggested in the last question, there's a big overlap. And so there are many areas, far more now than was recognized 200 years ago, where the state and federal governments both have responsibility. And there are a couple of, uh, I, I would say, substantial caveats that ought to be added to our understanding of state responsibility. One of those has to do with the 14th Amendment and the fact that Subsequent to the Civil War, at least when we get to issues of individual rights and issues of equality and so forth, we now see that the national government has a, a, a control over what state and local governments do and can do, even within areas where the states are traditionally sovereign. And there's also a caveat with respect to the spending clause. We'll probably talk about that a little bit more at some point. What I mean by that is national government has a lot of money, and they can use that in ways that in turn influence or affect the way in which state governments act. That's why we can no longer say, for instance, that education is a purely state and local matter because the national government has used its, its ability to spend money to affect education in the states. But we should remember that that's still an area where I would suggest states are sovereign, and States, when they accept federal government, may give up a little bit of their sovereignty, but they have to be given that choice. Okay. And Steve, we would pose the same question for you. Uh, what matters should belong to the federal government? What matters do you see being reserved more for the states? Okay, well, that's uh, a question that the Constitution in part answers, uh, but not completely. But if you look in Article 1, Section 8, for example, there are the powers of Congress, and many of those are exclusive, uh, certainly coining money, printing money, uh, bankruptcy system, post office system, uh, patents, copyrights, trademarks, those sort of things, uh, predominantly federal. Uh, the federal government obviously has a national security role that the states do not have, and in fact, the Constitution precludes the states from certain warlike activities. Uh, they can't declare war. Uh, Congress does that. Uh, they can't enter treaties with other countries. The federal government does that. So there's definitely an, an international national security component. But then I think it gets <clears throat> much fuzzier. And, and one of the, the ways I always talk with my students in constitutional law, it's maybe hard to conceive of, but at least in theory, the two governments are, are established in very different ways uh, in the sense that the states are viewed as the repository basically of, as Bill said, sort of general sovereignty to do what's necessary to protect the health, safety, welfare, morals of their communities. Uh, that's referred to as the police power. So when you're talking about the states, the question isn't can they do it. 
The question is, is there something in the Constitution that prevents them from doing it? So if the state wants to make something a crime, they can decide to make it a crime. Uh, the federal government, in contrast, is conceived of as a government that has been given powers by the people. Enumerated powers is the phrase the Supreme Court likes to use and was used uh, at the founding. And, and the notion that the federal government only exercises what it's given. So Congress cannot simply wake up one day and say, here's a problem. Uh, nothing in the Constitution says we can address it, but we'd like to pass a law about it. Congress actually has to look in the Constitution and find what gives us the authority to act, whereas the state of Kansas legislature can wake up one day and say, here's a problem, we'd like to address it, let's address it. Uh, and so there's a fundamental difference between the sort of police power that the states have uh, and the enumerated powers that the federal government has. Uh, one of the problems that we'll quickly get into with federalism is some of the, some of the boundaries in the Constitution are quite clear. So states don't set up post offices. States don't print money. Those things are off limits. Uh, but the Constitution has some provisions like the Commerce Clause, which I'm sure we will talk about, that says Congress can act to regulate basically interstate commerce. And that has been ultimately read by the Supreme Court in very expansive ways so that almost anything anybody does becomes commerce, which allows Congress to regulate. And the problem with the broad Commerce Clause interpretation is it starts to turn the federal government into a police power kind of situation where Congress really can address virtually anything it wants. And so that's one of the places of probably some disagreement, but certainly one of the places of great debate uh, in recent years is have we turned Congress into basically a police power sovereign the way states are, because because Congress is not supposed to be that. Okay. Well, Steve, we'll stay with you for the next question. Can you specify a, a time period or even a specific occurrence uh, where the federal government maybe you, it could be argued overstepped its given authority? Yes, I'd point to a couple things uh, that you might not think about and then one that you may well have thought about. Uh, I think a dramatic difference uh, in the, it's set up in the early part of the 20th century and will come to fruition during the New Deal for a variety of reasons. Uh, but that would be the 16th and 17th Amendments. The 16th Amendment, which I think is around 1913, progressive era, uh, allows the federal government to tax our incomes. That's the beginning of the end. Uh, once they can tax our income, it allowed the federal government to generate vast amounts of revenue that it did not typically have access to previously. And the reason we had to have the 16th Amendment was because the Supreme Court said the original Constitution did not authorize the federal government to tax incomes. Uh, so that's one thing, lots of revenue, and that relates to one power that Bill has already mentioned, the spending power. Now they have lots of money. There's things they can do with it. Uh, and the other is the 17th Amendment, which follows uh, virtually the same time. And that changed the process by which U.S. senators were selected. You probably can't even conceive of this, but until 1913 or so, U.S. senators were picked by their state legislature. So the two U.S. senators from Kansas would be selected by the legislature. The people didn't vote on it. The legislature picked them. Why would that make a difference to the authority of states or the way they might be treated in Washington? 
Well, I think, uh, and I agree, tend to agree with Justice Scalia and others who've written about this, that it waters down when the senators just have to be popularly elected, at least in modern times. How do you do that? You do that with lots of money, not necessarily by being beholden to your state governor or your legislature or the state officials. Uh, and the 17th Amendment took away what used to be a very strong influence on U.S. senators to protect their state's interests. Because if they didn't protect their state's interests, the legislature would not have them going back to Washington as a senator. Uh, so those two structural changes, if you will, uh, in the 19-teens, then set the stage for the New Deal era uh, where we had a true national crisis, uh, terrible economic times, uh, a president and a Congress that decided to be aggressive about the ways in which they would try to get us out of the Great Depression, uh, and they passed a number of laws, some of which the Supreme Court first struck down as being beyond their power. But then Roosevelt talked about changing the Supreme Court, uh, adding justices, getting it to the point where he would have a majority of the uh, appointments on the Supreme Court. And lo and behold, the Supreme Court decided some of these aggressive laws should be upheld. And that's more or less been the trend ever since. So I would say the New Deal is kind of the defining shift in federal government power, but I do think it was set up, in part at least, by the ability to tax incomes when we get into the spending power. We'll talk about how that is relevant and the change in way senators are selected made senators much less answerable to their home states. They just have to get elected by enough people, spend enough money on ads to convince you to vote for them. They don't have to worry too much about what the state legislature or the state government or a state governor might want done. So I'll stop there. Okay. Bill, can you specify a, a time period or a specific occurrence in which the federal government, you could argue, wisely expanded its reach? Sure. That one's easy. Um, and let me first just note, it, it really is not just the 16th and 17th Amendments. I would say the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th Amendments all address the issue of, the, of federalism and the balance of power and how much authority should be exercised by the national government, how much by the state governments. And those are amendments to the Constitution, which means that there was a sense that there was a need for shifting that balance. The real shift is the one that Steve alluded to, though. It really happened in 1937 uh, when there was a change in how the Supreme Court justices voted on issues pertaining to the New, new Deal. Uh, we had gone through a period of time in which uh, the Supreme Court had effectively taken on the role of governing, in my view, and overruling decisions that had been made by the elected uh, branches of, of government, by Congress in particular, and doing such things as saying, no, you can't regulate child labor, um, no, you can't uh, create fair labor standards one way or another, that changed in 1937, and it changed then, that, that change became ingrained as the people who were subsequently appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court were appointed by Franklin Roosevelt and his successors. Roosevelt, in particular, had in mind wanting and seeking to change that balance. It had to do with the definition of the Commerce Clause, and as Steve has already mentioned, that's one of those aspects of the Constitution which is inherently vague. And 
what happened in 1937 is that they came up with a new way of understanding what it means to regulate commerce among the states. Uh, in my mind, that made it possible to address some of the real problems of federalism, where you had some st states which in turn were exploiting child labor, among other things, and manufacturing might well go to those states, but it was a kind of destructive competition where states that were the least protective um, may well use that as a way of attracting uh, money and business, and that was harmful to the nation as a whole. At least that became the consensus subsequently, I would say. It also allowed the national government to address the severe economic problems that we were experiencing during the period of the, uh, of the Great Depression and the need for the New Deal legislation. So such things as regulating commodities in a manner that would make it possible to maintain a price structure and so forth uh, that in turn undercut what had been going on where competition was simply, competition among states was simply resulting in uh, real problems uh, in, in terms of the underlying loss of employment, the kinds of things that were feeding the national depression at that time. We recognized that we are a national economy in 1937 and that it's essentially impossible to see how you can address those problems without doing them at a national level. Okay, thank you. Bill, we'll stay with you for the next question. Can you look down the road maybe 25 years and, and give us a prediction as to how things might look in terms of, of federalism? Oh, it's sure. A long ways off. Yeah, 25 years is easy. Uh, if you will tell me what's going to happen 12 months from now. And this is a point that I think everybody here should appreciate. That is that there's a balance on the United States Supreme Court, which has resulted in no dramatic changes, really, over a course of the last, oh, I would say even 30 or 40 years. Um, there have been people who have had... Uh, Justice Kennedy, now it's just Justice Kennedy, but critical decisions are made over and over again by votes of five to four, and there's a very good likelihood that whoever is president starting a year from now will end up having the authority to make appointments that will change the direction of the country in a fundamental way as it pertains to at least some of the issues that Steve and I are, are going to talk about. I frankly don't think it's going to make an enormous difference, e even with the, the more extreme possibilities on either side with respect to the narrow issues of federalism. 25 years from now, though, is interesting in still a different way because I think the bigger issue on the horizon is not what happens to federalism within the United States, but what happens with respect to these issues when we look at them instead on an international level. Because while in the 18th century we really were an agrarian economy where local state authority was significant, by the 20th century we were a national economy, we all know that we are now living in an era of an international economy. And in an era when international rules for what you do and how you do it, and even the issues of human rights 
become addressed at an international level, not just a national level. And I would suggest that's where the biggest changes are likely to appear. I, I frankly think that people who are opposing the new uh, trade agreement have their heads in the sand in terms of wanting and resisting those changes which are going to come about and are which at some level probably should come about. In, uh, but it does mean that instead of simply looking in terms of shared sovereignty between states and the national government, we're also talking about sharing some elements of that sovereignty with international tribunals. Okay. And Steve, what do you see when you look in your crystal ball for 25 years down the road? Well, I, I see the federal government uh, never uh, declining in size or scope. Uh, I, I think the federal government will continue to expand its reach, and I actually think that's true whether it's Republicans or Democrats who are controlling Congress or the White House. Uh, I don't think the Republicans, even if they control the White House, have never shown that much inclination to really reduce the overall operations of the federal government. They just may have different issues they care about than the Democrats do. Uh, so I think the federal government will continue to grow. Federal taxes will continue to increase. They will generate more revenue uh, and, and continue to, if you will, put their thumb on the states in certain ways. And, and I think the federal government will become ever more involved uh, in areas that typically have been the state's territory. Education is a great example. Uh, where the federal government is increasingly involved through the spending power. It gives money to the states, so then it dictates what they have to do in their public schools. Uh, and, and so I just see the federal government is not decreasing virtually no matter who is in charge. Uh, I do agree with Bill. As far as the Supreme Court, uh, the next presidency could be very important because you've got several justices and both sides in the swing vote. I mean, the oldest justices on the court are Kennedy, the swing vote, Ginsburg, actually the oldest, and Scalia. So, you know, if, if all three of them were to depart and one president got to appoint their replacements, that would could be a potentially very significant change on the Supreme Court, which then might well affect some of the doctrines that we're talking about here that, that it matter for federalism purposes. But I, I just see, you know, I think... Any any notion that there's going to be a fundamental shift back to, you know, a 19th century version of of federalism and the role states played then, uh, is is probably just fantasy. Uh, I remember talking to Justice Scalia once about um, certain cases in this area, and and this was several years ago, and, and his view was. All we're doing is basically rearguard actions. I mean, we've lost the war. The, the states are less important. The federal government's always going to be more dominant. And so we're fighting skirmishing at the, at the margins on, on certain issues. But fundamentally, the national government, in my view, will continue to be very prominent and in some sense dominant. That doesn't mean the states will ever disappear. There's too much that we need to do locally. Uh, for the states to disappear. We have to have police, we have to have prisons, we have schools, we have roads. So the states will always be important. But I think, if anything, 25 years from now, their ability to act independent of federal law will be further decreased than it is now. Okay, as we shift into sort of the, the second phase here this evening, the next handful of questions are questions that uh, neither of these gentlemen have been informed of before. And before we get to those, I would remind everyone to 
take advantage of this opportunity. If you are thinking of any questions, I believe you have instructions there in your program for submitting those questions, which we will get to in just a little bit. Uh, the first question that I would ask this time around here, we will switch back to the other side. Um, Bill, can the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage be justified in light of the fact that this has often been an issue reserved for the states? Yes. You want me to say more? If you would like. Sure. Um, I, I think that there are two different ways in which to justify it. The one that Justice Kennedy seemed to focus on was had to do with individual dignity, individual liberty, and there really is by now a significant line of cases that help to establish that concept. I frankly would have, had I been uh, asked, focused instead on equal protection issues, the fact that you have a group that is being discriminated against with respect to a fundamental interest or a fundamental right, which is marriage. And I think the history of discrimination based on it, sexual orientation is one that warrants court protection and court intervention, and that doing so in that context. Just, Justice Kennedy talked about the profound relationship between equal protection on the one hand and due process on the other. But I don't like the way in which he downplayed the equal protection element of that, and I think it would have been a stronger opinion and one w with even deeper roots had he focused to a greater extent on the discrimination, and that is the underlying problem that was being addressed, and I really think there are deep roots to, to that aspect of it. Well, the gay marriage issue is, is quite fascinating in a lot of ways uh, and, and challenging in some ways. Uh, you know, certainly as a policy matter, you can absolutely justify permitting same-sex marriage. Uh, and, and I agree with Bill that if you're going to justify it on a constitutional basis, it has to be on the basis of an individual rights notion. Uh, equal protection is, is probably the best way to go at it uh, because... You know, we say you can't, as a general matter, consider things like race and gender uh, when you enact laws. And really, I think sexual orientation is, is in this essence, in the same category as that. People are hardwired. They are what they are. That People don't choose. You're just who you are. So if it's an immutable trait, then why should it be something that the state can legislate on? On the other hand, there is a tension, at least with the tradition, uh, that domestic matters, marriage, divorce, child custody, child support, all sorts of things, uh, have been the state's domain. Uh, and, and so there, you know, you may recall the Chief Justice's dissent in the, in the case was all about that, really, uh, the long tradition of state control, that this should be left to the states, uh, that the states were working their way through it. There's actually a rapid change in attitudes. More and more states were adopting same-sex marriage either as a matter of law, a, a statute, or their courts were mandating it. You know, we were up to 20 or so, I think, by the time the Supreme Court intervened. Uh, the notion was the tide was turning, leave it to the states. It's always been their territory. What I find particularly interesting about that uh, is Justice Kennedy himself, uh, not long before, in, in a case uh, called Windsor, which challenged federal law that said only heterosexual couples could get various federal benefits like income tax deductions, you know, married filing jointly. Uh, when Kennedy wrote for the court striking down that law, 
a big part of his opinion was the federal government shouldn't be defining what marriage is because that's always been the state's territory. It belongs to the states. To be frank, I never believed that he believed that. It was just a, a justification in that case, and I think the, the proof was two years later when he got the actual question, he didn't defer to the states at all. Uh, you know, that one, that one to me is, is particularly tough uh, because of, you know, there is sort of competing the individual rights on the one hand and the longstanding state control over what is marriage and, and what kind of family relationships are legally recognized, so. Okay. The next question that I would have, and we'll, we'll stay with you, Steve, on this, is how can the state of Colorado justify not enforcing federal drug law? And I guess there's sort of a, an added question with that. Is this the beginning of a, a growing, or is it an ongoing trend of states kind of taking some of these issues into their own? Okay, well, I'm, I'm not in favor of necessarily the law that Colorado passed, but I am in favor of their power to do it. Uh, so what Colorado basically did is, is legalize marijuana as a matter of state law, and I don't see it as a problem that they choose to be counter to federal law because it's not their job to enforce federal law. That's up to the DEA, DOJ, and that's, that's what's happened is the federal government has said we will not generally enforce the law uh, in Colorado, at least not for small matters. They might still get interested if it was some huge conspiracy. But, but basically the federal government has said we won't enforce it. Colorado said we want to make it legal. And I, I would like to say this about it. There is a case pending in the, in the U.S. Supreme Court where Nebraska and Oklahoma have sued the state of Colorado about this law, uh, arguing that federal law should be enforced, Colorado shouldn't be allowed to do this because all this marijuana is now coming into Oklahoma and Nebraska and causing all sorts of difficulties for their police. Uh, but guess who's not in that suit? Kansas, the state right in the middle. Uh, certainly, Kansas could have participated in that suit, but as a matter of principle, uh, I think if you really believe in federalism, you have to allow your sister states to make their choices about policy. So Kansas may say marijuana is still illegal, except for Wichita, which tried to go counter to that. Uh, but if Colorado wants to say it's legal, I actually think that's what federalism is about, is permitting states to make differing choices on some of these policy issues. Bill, how would you re respond to the same question? What I would add to what Steve has just said is that I also think this case illustrates the way in which the federal government and state governments work together in some respects with the federal government recognizing some states have different interests and therefore it's appropriate for the federal government to adjust to that. What it illustrates to me at one level is also the appropriate decision-making of the federal government in terms of how they should use their enforcement power and their enforcement resources. And what they have, in essence, decided is we're not going to use our enforcement resources to override the clear policy decisions that have been made by the people of Colorado. That also is an aspect of federalism. It's one that's not coming from Congress. It's coming instead from the national administration. Uh, but I think it's an appropriate kind of enforcement decision-making that goes on within the national government as well. 
Okay. Well, shifting gears to a different question here, Bill, we'll stay with you. In light of sort of your, your view or definition of federalism, how do you interpret the Second Amendment? I mean, what protections should be afforded? Um, I would have interpreted the Second Amendment very differently from the way it has been interpreted thus far by the United States Supreme Court in that I really think the militia clause should have been seen as controlling and that it is a, a, a more of a group or community right, not an individual right to own guns. Um, so I would have started with that principle and would never have reached the issue of the individual right. Um, I would also highlight, though, the problems that underlie the way in which the Second Amendment has now been interpreted. And there are big issues down the road, which we really have only begun to see and the courts are going to be dealing with over uh, the next 5, 10, 15 years, trying to figure out exactly how interventionist the, the courts should be, to what extent should this end up being a court decision rather than a state and local decision-making process. Also, uh, when you get into it, where are they going to draw the lines? What does it mean in terms of the kind of weaponry individuals are allowed to have? Uh, and what level of scrutiny will the courts use in trying to decide? Does it include assault rifles or doesn't it? Uh, it probably doesn't include grenade launchers. But how you draw that line and how much of uh, uh, how much scrutiny should be given by the courts in drawing those lines. Also, an even more difficult question, I think, um, when you, it, it's one thing to easily say people who have, who are mentally ill should not have uh, a right to have guns. How you enforce that is incredibly difficult when it comes right down to it. And if the courts are going to strictly scrutinize every decision that state and local governments made in that respect, it's going to make it extremely difficult to draw those lines, and we're going to end up having this become an area where it is the judiciary rather than the uh, state and local governments in particular that do the decision-making. I don't think this is the kind of individual right that ought to be managed by the courts. That goes back to why I think they made the wrong decisions at the beginning, but I think we're stuck now. And I think we're going to see a long period of, of difficult decision-making in terms of what we really mean um, by a right to bear arms. And, Steve, what's, what's your take kind of in terms of the interpretation of Second Amendment? I don't have – I mean, it's an interesting question, and the court managed not to answer it for almost 220 years, yeah. what it meant. Uh, you know, I guess – I don't have a particularly strong reaction to the recognition of some kind of a, a right. I mean, everything else in the Bill of Rights virtually, we have said, has an individual nature to it. So free speech, freedom of religion, protection against unlawful searches and seizures, right to counsel, all that stuff. So the Second Amendment is in there. What I would add, and I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with anything Bill said other than I'm, I'm not perhaps quite as persuaded by the militia limitation, but even... Even accepting that, uh, the federalism point I would make is suppose the Supreme Court had gone the other way and said the, the right to bear arms is not individual, it's a militia-only right. Well, that doesn't mean in all the states there would be no gun rights. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it might mean the federal government would be limited or less limited in regulating 
but in fact, something like 44 or 45 state constitutions, and that's something you should recognize, all states have a constitution of their own. Uh, and 44 or 45 have explicit gun rights in their state constitution. So as a matter of state law, there are some states that would protect and do protect it more strongly than what the Supreme Court is recognizing. Uh, the uh, Kansas provision, which is, was amended a few years ago, not that long ago, is very explicit about a right to possess firearms for purposes such as hunting and self-defense and other things. It's much more clear than the, the oddly worded Second Amendment. Uh, and, and that's a point of federalism, too. The, 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 the federal constitution does not have to be the be-all and end-all of our rights uh, under government. You know, the state constitutions exist, and as a general matter, if the federal government chooses not to protect something, states can. And, and so some of the arguments about federalism are when should the federal government just stay out and leave it up to the states to figure out how much protection. So some states might decide to ban firearms in various situations. Others would absolutely protect the possession of them. Okay, Steve, we'll stay with you for the next question. From time to time, it seems as though there are maybe unfunded federal mandates. Is that something that you feel can be readily justified, or is it, or are you going to have to look at it on an individual case-by-case -case basis? Well, I, I will say I, I don't like unfunded mandates. Uh, and, you know, there's some doctrine there that the Supreme Court has created, too. I mean, this, this sort of goes to... It's analogous, or at least goes along with the spending power that was mentioned earlier. So what happens is, is Congress or the federal government appropriates money for various purposes, and it goes to the states. But when they do that, they say, here's what you have to do if you want to receive the money. Uh, and the idea is if you don't want to do what the federal government's asking, then you just say no to the money. Uh, there are lots of issues with that and interesting territory there. Uh, but truly unfunded mandates, where the federal government just simply mandates something, I think to some extent the Supreme Court has made it more difficult for the federal government to do that. There are a couple of cases where they have basically said you cannot order essentially a state legislature to adopt a particular law. Uh, you cannot commandeer, is the word they use, state officials. So if you pass a federal law, you can't tell the sheriffs in Kansas to enforce it. You're going to have to either attach it to money for enforcement or you're going to have to send federal agents in to enforce it. So I don't know if unfunded mandates, at least in the way I think of them, are actually very common or likely. And the Supreme Court in recent years has reacted pretty strongly against those efforts. Bill, what's your view? I, I basically agree with Steve. And I think... You know, that's an area where the court, I think, struck a fairly reasonable balance in the sense that it still leaves the federal government with plenty of options. If the government, if the national government wants the states to do something and is willing to pay, that is to spend the money that makes it come about, uh, the federal government still, generally speaking, has that alternative. States are free then to reject the money. Um, but still another option is for the federal government to do it itself. So given the fact that the federal government is left with optional ways of getting, uh, uh, of addressing the same problems, uh, that seemed to be a pretty good way of addressing the underlying uh, complaint against unfunded, un, uh, unfunded mandates. Okay, Bill, we'll stay with you for the next question. How does your view of federalism impact your view of maybe 
tribal sovereignty versus state sovereignty? Do you see those as being similar? Are there important distinctions? Um, There's an important distinction to begin with, and that is that tribal nations have a degree of their own sovereignty, or at least I, I see them as having their own sovereignty, especially in respect to their relationship to states, so that there are limitations on the extent to which states can govern tribes, tribes can't govern states. We operate with two separate sovereigns within our state in that sense. But then you have the overlay of the national government, and as a general principle, what we have seen is uh, courts will defer to the decisions that are made by the national government when they balance those issues of state and tribal sovereignty. Um, For a variety of historical reasons, I think that, uh, unfortunately, tribal sovereignty has been undercut more than it should be, that we would be better off with Indian nations being recognized as such to a somewhat greater degree. I, I wish that the public generally was aware of the extent to which there is that strong history of uh, tribal sovereignty so that we would have more respect for it. But there has been a history of disrespect in that regard. Nevertheless, I really think that the approach by which it is the national government, which generally supervises the sovereign relationships between uh, states on the one hand and Indian nations on the other, is a pretty good, healthy approach to resolving a very complex and difficult issue. Steve, do you have a response? Well, I, I agree. The tribal area is, to me, both interesting uh, and, and tragic in some ways, but also extremely complicated. The uh, the federal government, it is true that it, in some sense the tribes are conceived of as sovereigns and really as sovereign nations. They're not viewed the same way as states. So yep. there's a lot of legal purposes. They do not get the same treatment as states. They are really, in, in a way, viewed as sovereign nations, uh, but very limited power sovereign nations. It is certainly true that the states and the tribes do get into it sometimes. I can think of an example in Kansas several years ago uh, where one of the tribes was selling gasoline on the reservation. Uh, they wanted to tax the gas, and their argument was that the state couldn't tax it because if the state taxed it and the tribe taxed it, the price would go up so much that they wouldn't have a competitive price. Uh, and that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court actually ruled that Kansas could tax the gas. But you get into those kind of disputes all the time about what happens on tribal land, which always sits within a state. So you you have the potential. uh, There's jurisdiction issues that I don't begin to understand over crimes committed by whom and where exactly. So you have non-Indians on Indian land and who has authority to. So I I would say I basically agree with Bill. I I think in some ways it's, it's sad that the tribes do not have greater sovereignty than they do. Uh, but it's a very complicated relationship, and you add to that the federal government has this almost parental kind of oversight in some ways role relationship uh, with the tribes, uh, Department of Interior, and it's a longstanding feature of the federal government. And, and frankly, it's just kind of a mess. It's, it's a very complicated and probably unsatisfying area of the law for everybody. Uh, Wonderful it. course to take if you go yeah, to law school. Yeah, if you want a really complicated law course, take, take Indian law. <clears throat> Steve, I was wondering if you could speak to sort of your view of presidential executive orders and, and the way that they've been sort of used historically. Do you see that as 
creating an imbalance moving forward, or has it always been a possibility? Uh, yeah, fair question. I, I don't know if it's always – certainly presidents have always had the authority to issue executive orders, and certainly at times they have been denied the ability to implement. I mean, there was a very famous one uh, where Harry Truman tried to seize the steel mills during the Korean conflict uh, because he wanted to keep them operating so that the Army would be supplied with equipment and products that needed steel. And the Supreme Court slapped him hard and said – he could not do that. It was a domestic matter. Uh, it was for Congress to decide if you're going to do something that dramatic. The more recent example, of course, is the uh, immigration executive order, which has been challenged uh, in federal court by a number of states objecting to it. Uh, and I think the case is working its way up through Texas, and it's actually reached the circuit level, so it may be in the Supreme Court's hands pretty soon. But I, I think it is troubling uh, if the sense, you know, I sort of see it two ways. If the sense is the president is doing something that really a chief executive or the commander in chief needs to do, that may be one thing. But if the president is frustrated with a Congress that will not enact domestic policy that he would like to see, that's a very different consideration. I think immigration is a challenging and probably debatable territory because, on the one hand, the impact of illegal immigration is very domestic, but the actual problem of immigration would seem to be something that is, under the Constitution, largely the federal government's prerogative. I mean, it has the authority over immigration and naturalization, deciding what qualifies for citizenship and so forth. So there is an argument that the states shouldn't be getting in the way of federal policy uh, but I think the border states have found that harder and harder to accept because it's Texas, it's Arizona. They're the ones that are really feeling the effect of the immigration issues. And Bill, what's, what's your view of the use of the executive I, order? I, I think the immigration debate is a really good illustration of the problem and the difficulty of drawing the lines. And I think it's been difficult to draw that line even for the Obama administration, which has drawn it in, in what I would regard as a relatively aggressive manner. But at the same time, in my view, they've drawn it in an appropriate manner in a context, at least when interpreted as simply uh, an illustration of an executive decision of how to use scarce resources in a context when there are 11 million uh, undocumented aliens living in the United States. You cannot suddenly deport all 11 million of them, despite what Donald Trump says. And therefore, you have to make decisions. And what Obama has essentially done is to say, as a matter of enforcement practice, we're going to use our enforcement resources to deport those people who have a, a criminal conviction, those people who have recently immigrated to the United States, those people who don't have family relationships and so forth. Um, but we're not going to use our enforcement power to address this other group of people that he has identified. He spelled that out in part out of frustration with Congress because Congress w was not acting, and that's where the conflict becomes difficult. I think even he would recognize it would be much better if we had real policies developed by Congress, what we have instead is an administrative enforcement decision. I don't see it as materially different than the decision, for example, not to enforce marijuana 
federal law in Colorado. Uh, even though the federal law says it's to be the same throughout all 50 states, there's no Colorado exception in that federal legislation. Um, what the administration has said is, in states where they have developed a different policy, we're going to respect that. Now, you don't have the same kind of state uh, recognition or respect in the context of, of the immigration issue, but you have the same underlying question about how are we going to use federal resources to uh, exercise our enforcement power, and that's what he's doing, and I think there's a long history to doing that. It's just being done a bit more aggressively in this context than it has uh, been done historically. But in many respects, much of what he's doing has deep historical roots. Well, thank you both. You've certainly given us a great deal to think about. Professor Tremaine, do we have a few submissions at this point from our audience? Could I ask you if, if we could answer one question that was on the list that I think we may have missed, just because I'm curious to hear Bill's answer? Sure. Uh, you, you had a question about a case that I thought best illustrates the judiciary overstepping its bounds, and I think for Bill the question was an example where uh, the court correctly intervened in something that had previously been a state yeah, issue. I like that question, too. Yeah. And this is one where we might really disagree with each other, so it's a good one. Yeah, certainly. Let's, All let's, right. Do you want me first? Or you? Yes, go first. Okay, so so what's a case that illustrates the judiciary overstepping its bounds? Uh, you know, I can think of, of uh, a couple, but, you know, I think the, the one that certainly would be debated, I recognize, but the one that has caused the most controversy, obviously, is Roe versus Wade. Uh, you know, 40 years later, we are still fighting and fighting about the scope of abortion rights. Uh, and one at least could wonder if the Supreme Court had stayed out of it, would it have worked itself out uh, in the states in various ways over time? Uh, and, and so that's one where I think, you know, one of my old bosses was, was Justice Byron White, and he was a dissenter in Roe versus Wade. And what some team, people sometimes don't realize is the dissent by him in particular was not he was anti-abortion at all. Uh, the dissent was this is not something the court should decide. It's too controversial. It's, it's too important. The states, state by state, where the people can argue and everyone has their chance to articulate their views and they can work out compromises or not, that's where it should be decided. And I think that's an important question to ask yourselves. Are there some issues that... You know, the one thing about having the Supreme Court rule is you either win or you lose. So you'll get the rule that you want, or you definitely don't get the rule that you want. But it does preclude debate in the states then in ways that might have resulted in a variety of answers to what sort of scope should be given to abortion rights. Uh, I understand the other side of the concern. Some states might say it's a crime, it's prohibited absolutely, then people have different rights uh, in different states. But that, to some extent, may be a necessity of federalism if you're actually going to pursue federalism and allow states to make those kinds of choices. So like Colorado is being allowed to make a choice about marijuana, uh, I think that's appropriate, but there are probably other areas, and abortion may be one, uh, where the court got out ahead of the states in the country, I think, uh, and the backlash has lasted for over 40 years now. And I'll, I'll give you this thought, and then, you know, I had somebody ask the question after same-sex marriage, is the same-sex marriage case like Brown versus Board of Education, which was a huge 
change and a major intervention by the Supreme Court. But looking back, nobody uh, reasonably says Brown was wrong. It was the right thing to do. So the question is, same-sex marriage 20 years from now going to be viewed like Brown, or is it going to be viewed like Roe, that there will still be states complaining and fighting and arguing we should be able to decide what marriage is, uh, my own answer to that is I think it's actually like Brown. I, I do think that one will will become widely accepted, but I just don't row, you know, 40-some years later, we are still very much fighting about that one. <clears throat> is there a particular case that you think best illustrates the judiciary, you know, correctly intervening in something that had been a state issue? And when you address it in terms of the judiciary correctly intervening, it's First of all, in the federalism context in particular, to me, appropriate to point out, in some respects, the most important decisions were those where the judiciary chose not to intervene. And I I would highlight in that context, for example, uh, upholding the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and deciding that that falls within the powers of Congress, even though you still have to stretch the Commerce Clause in order to get there, but I think it was appropriate for them to do so and for the judiciary to let Congress make that decision. Um, In terms of cases where I think it was appropriate, the one that I had written down is Brown versus Board of Education uh, because it's so easy and because we do have that level of agreement. I I agree with Steve that Roe versus Wade continues to be controversial in this regard and there continue to be legitimate debates about whether or not that was appropriate. Uh, In some respects, I I kind of like, I I indicated earlier that in the same-sex marriage context, I like reliance on an equal protection analysis better than this concept of of ordered liberty or concept of dignity, which are uh, so amorphous that they're pretty tough in some ways to constitutionalize. Even in Roe v. Wade, I have some preference for an equal protection approach. Um, And interestingly enough, Justice Ginsburg has said the same thing about both Roe v. Wade and the same-sex marriage case, that Roe v. Wade perhaps could be better understood as a case saying that women have a right to make decisions about their bodies uh, free from government intervention and that it is really an issue of rights of women and therefore has to do with equal protection as much as it does with issues of individual liberty. Okay. Do we have some questions from the folks here tonight? Okay. Our first question is from Cody Campbell says, I come from Arizona. I know the seriousness of how immigration affects citizens' everyday life. Why should a senator from South Dakota who works in Washington have a say on how a border state conducts their border when he or she has never dealt with border issues personally? Steve, you have a response on that? Well, that's, I mean, uh, two responses. One, the reason I suppose the senator has a vote is is the Constitution does contemplate that immigration and naturalization matters are part of the federal government's territory. Uh, So I think the the federal government is very legitimately involved in immigration issues. My view with the the state's role is, you know, this, this question Bill raised of 
they're not completely separate spheres. There's always overlap. And so to the extent the states are feeling the effects of federal policy that may have failed, uh, can the states take actions to address the problems within their jurisdiction? Uh, and, and I think the answer, and the Supreme Court has actually had a case or two on this in recent years, is yes in certain ways, uh, but there may be limits. So if, for example, a state, Arizona or Texas, just said, okay, the federal government won't deport people, we will, uh, I don't think Texas or Arizona can actually do that constitutionally. I mean, that's ultimately controlled by federal law. And remember, there's a supremacy clause in the Constitution that says if federal law and state law conflict, that's one of the very clear answers in the Constitution. I mean, having, like Bill, taught for many years, there are a lot of unclear questions that arise from the Constitution, but if there's a conflict between state and federal law, it's absolutely clear federal law wins as long as the federal law is valid. Uh, so I think I, I empathize with the, the border states. I, I recognize that there are a lot of challenges, but there is a limit to how much the states can respond to that, and that's what I think we're fighting about right now. Uh, the executive order is sort of, that's why Texas and I think Kansas is actually involved in that challenge and a number of other states saying the president shouldn't be able to, to basically choose not to enforce certain aspects of federal law because of the effect it has on us as states. I think the question was asked about a senator from South Dakota, but if you make that North Dakota, there's another border state. You can imagine, however, the problems we would get into if every border state tried to have its own rules about who can immigrate and who can't. One of the things that's nice about the United States is that we do have freedom of movement from one state to another. We don't enforce borders between our states. So that regardless of what Arizona tries to do, there are going to be other border states and other places where people will come into the United States, and if they want to end up in Arizona, they're going to be free to go there. And trying to imagine a, a situation in which individual states control these decisions, particularly when one also understands the overlap of decisions about immigration and our international relationships more generally. When we interact with Mexico or Canada or any other foreign nation, it is our national government that is in charge of that relationship. We don't want 50 different governors, for example, trying to conduct international policy. And if we tried to do that, we would end up uh, ha having real conflicts and real problems that we, we avoid by seeing ourselves as a single nation in the sphere of international affairs. Okay. Our next question comes from Brad Everson. And the question is, recent Oscar Schmidt lecture series speaker, Rod Larned, said the glorious feeling of accomplishment is important, and it's important to Coke Industries CEO Charles Koch. Is the federal government robbing this from citizens via entitlement spending? The glorious feeling of accomplishment? Um, I don't think so. Uh, that is, I think if we look at Charles Koch in particular, he's got quite a lot to have glorious feelings about in that regard. Um, and so do others. If one looks at the experiences that those with wealth have in the United States, uh, it, it's not as if they lack that, uh, that experience or the opportunities for that experience. At the same time, with that experience comes obligation. And obligations, among other things, to develop healthy communities. Healthy communities mean communities in which people have opportunities regardless of the their status at the time of their birth. 
and regardless of other aspects of who they are and what limitations they might experience in terms of their individual capabilities, in terms of uh, their individual uh, opportunities and so forth, we, we want to be sure that at some level we function as a community. And there are a lot of people who in turn see that, ex that, that glorious experience of living in a wonderful and vibrant community as being equally uh, um, exhilarating, in a sense. And respecting both is part of what I think we ought to be about. Uh, I, it, it, if you look at it in constitutional terms, on the one hand, we do have a constitutional commitment to a concept of liberty. And that includes individual liberty to do things like choose what job we're going to have and and how much of our time we're going to be putting into particular interests and so forth. We also have a constitutional principle of equality. And the balance between the two is one that our government has primary responsibility for working out. To a certain extent, it becomes a constitutional issue, but in large measure, it's really up to the government to balance those issues, to be sure that individuals are not overly exploited, and to prevent Charles Koch from exploiting people who are less fortunate from, than he. And that's part of how we balance liberty and equality in this sense. Okay. Steve, do you have a response? Well, I, you, know, you, you certainly hear people argue that federal entitlement programs are, are in some ways bad because they allow people to just be on welfare and they don't have to work. And, you know, I suppose there are instances where people are playing the system and taking advantage of that. I don't suspect, by and large, the vast majority of people really prefer to be on welfare as to working and being productive. Uh, you know, if the government has gone too far in that direction or doesn't enforce or police and allows people to do that, well, then there may be particular issues there. Uh, but, you know, I agree with, with Bill that our a big part of our constitutional notion is liberty, uh, equality under the law, but not necessarily in terms of resources and opportunities and everything else in the sense of I would compare it to some constitutions of other countries. South Africa is a great example uh, where there are, for example, affirmative rights to housing, to education, to other sorts of resources. That's not our constitution. Our constitution basically says you do stand on your own. There are certain things the government cannot do to you. Uh, and if the government's going to provide welfare in the United States, it's not because the constitution mandates it. It's because the people through their elective rep elected representatives have chosen to create such programs. And, and that's fundamentally different than at least some countries around the world. Okay, Steve, we'll stay with you for this next question. It comes to us from Jonathan Yelton. Uh, the question is, how would one expect the federal government to represent the people's best interests when red and blue states are more and more separate and stubborn? And would you suggest the possibility of secession from the federal government? <laughs> yeah, well, Kansas hasn't quite gotten there. I think Texas has talked about that. Uh, I'm not a big fan of secession. It didn't work out so well in the 19th century. Uh, but, I, you know, I understand the frustration, and I do think one of the challenges with the federal government is the polarization of American society. There, there is much more of a divide in, in many ways than I think there used to be. And when you look at the elections, the presidential elections, and you, you see in recent years 
that often it, it comes down to one or two states that might change in a given election. Virtually everyone else is predictable. They're either going to be Republican or Democrat, and you've got to win Ohio or you've got to win Florida. Uh, that seems to me kind of unfortunate. Uh, and I, don't, I have no idea how you, how you fix that. Uh, you know, one of the entities I've worked a lot with at KU is the Dole Institute of Politics. And, and I do think we have lost more of the Dole model of bipartisanship uh, in the federal government. It, it's happening in state governments, too. But in, in the federal government, it's just extremes, often on both sides. And, and there are some people willing to work, but there are some who just refuse unless they get what they want. And, you know, Bob Dole and people, Howard Baker and others of, of that era, the way they got things done was they compromised, and they respected people on either side of the aisle, and they worked together. And I wish we could get to that, uh, but I'm not sure in the current environment how we get back to that. Bill, do you have a response? Yeah, well, I, I really agree that, that the problems are extreme now. Yet there have been other ex historical periods when there have been similar kinds of divisions, so it's not as if this is a totally unique cir circumstance, but there's some elements of it that I think are unique. Um, part of it has to do with money, uh, and I even put a little bit of blame on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, I don't agree with the decision that money should be so e quickly and totally uh, equated with speech, for example, and therefore given such protection in the election uh, campaign finance context. Uh, when the Supreme Court looked at that issue, they talked about corruption as only being a fear of corruption where it's individual bribery, uh, not corruption of the system. And I think we suffer from corruption of our system uh, in the way in which money now dictates things. I fault Congress to a much greater extent than the Supreme Court, however, because there are still things that Congress would be free to do, and frankly, they're not doing because they're so dysfunctional in, in part. But I think money has been used in a way that causes people to push into extreme directions on one side or another. I think the whole problem of, of apportionment and how reapportionment is handled within states is also a little bit of a part of that, not, not really so much within Kansas, but in some states, uh, so that you end up having legislative districts where you know that the outcome is either going to be a Democrat will be elected or a Republican will be elected. And that fuels uh, problems on so many different levels. Because on the one hand, that means that when you're running for office within that district, you're more concerned about winning a primary than winning a general election, and that pushes you to one side. But in addition to that, it means that the voting population within that district feels as if they don't count because they know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, I think a very good decision of the U.S. Supreme Court was the one that was made just this last term when they upheld, I think it was an Arizona uh, decision, decision by the voters of Arizona to have reapportionment commissions, which will at least look at that issue now from a less partisan perspective. I say less, not nonpartisan because partisanship is still going to be influencing where all that goes. Uh, I, I agree that, that the problems are enormous and that the solutions are going to be difficult to come by. Okay, well, our next question will direct just towards you, Bill. Uh, this comes from uh, Caleb Wheeler, who may be seeking some legal advice. He's asking, <laughs> do I need to pay a speeding ticket on tribal land? 
Yes. <laughs> um, and ask yourself the same question. Do you need to pay a speeding lim a ticket if you're stopped for speeding in Colorado or, or Nebraska? And I would give you the same answer. I don't know exactly what the intergovernmental agreements are with respect, respect to such things, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are such. I would expect that there should be such so that I know that that happens among states. If you have a Kansas license tag, you're stopped for speeding in Colorado, uh, the Colorado authorities are going to track you down in Kansas. And one way or another, you're going to end up having to pay that speeding ticket, and you may have to spend more if you have ignored it for a period of time. Um, and I suspect that the same kind of agreement ex exists between uh, tribal land and the state of Kansas. Steve, this question is for you. It's from uh, Trent Stuckey. It says, can you see an increase in federal involvement in individual states' rights to the point that perhaps we see a revolt by the people, maybe similar to what partially influenced the Civil War? Well, I certainly hope not. Uh, again, the Civil War was necessary, perhaps, but not an ideal way to, to work through things. Uh, you, you know, this does come up in Kansas and in some other states, uh, my view is that we are part of a nation. I'm also a Kansan and very proud of that. But at the end of the day, if the Constitution gives the federal government the power to do something, I may not like it, but it is the law, uh, and Kansans have to follow it. And we, we have seen examples of this uh, in the Kansas legislature in recent years where they say, well, let's just vote that you can't enforce federal gun laws in Kansas, or let's vote that you can't force people to buy health insurance if they don't want to. That's all fine and dandy as, a, as an expression of political disagreement. But I am certainly not one that would be advocating uh, civil disobedience or secession. Uh, if the federal government, in fact, has the power to do it, then we have to live with it, and there are mechanisms to change it, which are certainly being pursued. I mean, if you turn this over to the House of Representatives, they would repeal the health care law in a second. They vote, I don't know, every couple of days to repeal it. <laughs> but you, you've got to get through the Senate and the President. You know, we have a process for changing those laws. Uh, I would not advocate secession. And, and you know, frankly, uh, the state laws, I think they're fine as just a, a statement of disagreement with federal policy, but under the Constitution, unless you're going to destroy it, states cannot simply opt out of policies that they don't like if they are validly enacted by the federal government. Okay, the next question we'll pose for both of you, and this comes from Tori Martinez. Um, we'll go ahead and start with Bill. Uh, the question is, does Obamacare overstep the federal government's right to regulate health care reform? Uh, I don't think so, and I say that not just in terms of the decision made by the United States Supreme Court, particularly when it comes to regulating the healthcare industry. I think there's a fairly easy agreement that healthcare is part of commerce now, and regulation of healthcare, or at the very least, regulation of the insurance industry, is one that the United States government has responsibility for and can take responsibility for. The controversy in that particular context really was around the individual mandate and whether that individual mandate it, it was uh, going too far in terms of the exercise of power by the national government. Even there, uh, my belief was that that's the kind of issue where the court 
should defer to the decisions that are being made by Congress because I don't believe that there is a clear answer one way or another in an interpretation of Article 1, Section 8. Uh, uh, there are others who disagree with that. Uh, at this time, however, the Supreme Court has at least resolved that issue. Part of the problem is that if you look at some of the fundamental questions that are created or addressed by the Affordable Care Act, there are issues that are better addressed at a national level than at a state level. Uh, that also, I think, continues to be an issue that where, where there is some controversy. Um, but issues like uh, should you should an insurance company have a right to turn you down because you're sick? or because you have an, a past history of illness of some sort. I think the reality is that the insurance industry doesn't do a very good job of addressing that issues when left on its own, and therefore government intervention to in turn address that particular kind of problem was absolutely necessary. Otherwise, the people who are the uh, sickest in the nation are the ones who no insurance company will want to insure, and it's only through actions of the government that they result that, that they end up having insurance, and they ought to. Uh, so we end up with the kind of government regulation that it seems to me is appropriate if you think that people really should have access to health care, uh, particularly those who have a history of one kind or another of, uh, of illness. And you can't effectively address that in the absence of government regulation. Okay. Steve, you're comfortable with the regulation of health care reform? No. Uh, I would say uh, that I would agree with the dissenters, at least on the commerce power aspect, and I, I was pretty surprised that the court upheld the law on a taxing power that I didn't really believe was in play. But the, the problem with the commerce power is, I think, what, what four justices were objecting to is the notion that you could mandate that American citizens buy something that they may not want. Uh, you know, and it's one thing to say you can regulate commerce, so if I go to the doctor, maybe Congress can say you have to pay in cash or you can only pay with a credit card. That's regulating an actual commercial transaction. Uh, but the challenge in the healthcare case was at least the perception, I think the reality, is they're basically telling people buy something even if you don't want it. Uh, and, and I think the even well that was actually a majority position on the court that the commerce power was was not appropriately invoked and and I agree with that because 220 years Congress had never done anything like that and I think the court should always be skeptical if Congress comes up with some very new way to do something that it's never tried before. Uh, you know, there may be good reason they haven't tried it. They didn't really believe they could do it, but now they're going to try it. Uh, I agree with Bill. The healthcare industry itself is a huge economic commercial operation, and there are all kinds of aspects that the federal government can regulate as part of interstate commerce. But it's pretty threatening in some ways to think that Congress could decide, well, your individual decisions not to participate in commerce have an effect on commerce, therefore the remedy is we can force you to engage in commerce. And, you know, there were all sorts of examples from the plausible to probably implausible what could happen if you let Congress do this. Uh, you know, they decide it'd be best if everyone eats broccoli on a regular basis. So you have to buy broccoli every week because if you don't, you're not as healthy and that will end up affecting the economy and so forth. 
I mean, there's really no end to the possibilities, and, and I think what the majority objected to, which I agree with, is if Congress could do this, then really the commerce power has turned into the general police power that the states have, and there would be nothing that Congress couldn't reach. I agree with Bill. The problems are massive. I mean, trying to figure out a health care system that works, there are all kinds of problems. Uh, it may be that the federal government or a national answer is the best way to do this, but that doesn't mean there aren't limits in the Constitution as to how it's done. So if Congress thought by mandating you insure everyone and you can't charge sick people or people with pre-existing conditions more, which is part of the law, well, then maybe the federal government needs to put up the money to make the, the difference to the insurance companies. I just don't think it can force people who don't want to participate in the the economy to actually do so, which was what was going on, in order to subsidize uh, the costs of others who were being insured. Okay, our next question uh, we'll direct uh, to you, Bill, and it comes from Zach McElfresh. How should the federal government handle the refugee crisis in Syria? If we're accepting these individuals, they're going to have to be put in a particular state for a specific period of time. Isn't throwing thousands of people into a state an overstretch of federal government rights? Um, the issue of refugees is another one of those issues that has deep historical roots. And what is being talked about in terms of the U.S. responsibility is really very minor compared to both what has happened historically and also what is happening in Europe at this time. Uh, the numbers of people and where they're located and how those decisions are made, th those are difficult decisions. Um, but at the same time, there are communities who might welcome these people. I think, you know, the, the national government is going to be much better off finding communities where these people will be welcomed rather than imposing them on communities that are opposed to having them. Uh, refugees, however, pose a unique kind of under fundamental issue of human rights and one that is recognized internationally as part, it, it, it becomes part of our responsibility as a responsible uh, member of the international community to do our share. Um, it, it is not the individual refugees are not the people who are choosing to be victims of, of war. And uh, warrant, and there is a collective commitment to protecting people who fit into that status. Uh, refugees are different from immigrants in a, in a broad sense. What we're talking about are individuals who fit a relatively narrow category, and it's a relatively small number of people when you look at it in terms of the greater uh, picture of movement across borders uh, in various places. We have another question here uh, from Noah Schneider. Uh, we'll ask this of you, Steve. Uh, should the federal government intervene in regards to the crisis on the Sinai Peninsula? <laughs> um, well, I guess I'm not sure how that has federalism implications for the states. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, it would be my answer. I don't purport to be a foreign policy expert. Uh, so, I, you know, I really don't have an answer to that one. I, I could add a little to what Bill was talking about in that you know, these international crises or situations can spill over into the federalism territory. Uh, and another example that I would urge people to think about, uh, because it could become real, 
Uh, the president is determined to close Guantanamo before he leaves office. Those detainees have to go somewhere. Uh, he can't send them overseas. They're going to have to come somewhere in the United States. Uh, I don't think probably there's any state that wants them, but he's going to have to figure out if he does close it where they would go. Uh, Congress has passed laws saying no federal money in the Department of Defense can be spent to move the the detainees or to house the detainees or to build a facility, so Congress doesn't want him to do it. Uh, you know, and so there may be a big clash at some point if he actually tries to do it between whatever state he decides they're going to move to and the federal government. But what it makes me think about is a, a phrase that is sometimes used uh, uh, called cooperative federalism, so that the notion that there are instances in which the federal government and the states can actually work together. Uh, and, and, you know, that would be more ideal, I think, in the immigrant or the refugee situation or Guantanamo, if there's some way that the federal government can say, look, we, we need to house or, or locate these people. We realize what it will do to your state. We'll provide funding or other resources. And the state says, okay, on that basis, we're willing to take them. You know, that, that just has much more potential to play out in a satisfactory way than the federal government just saying, you're going to take Guantanamo detainees or you're going to take uh, a large group of refugees, which all of which does impose costs sure. on the states that the states object to. Okay, well, on, on, the, on the Sinai issue, it's not an issue of federalism as such, but I think it is an issue of separation of powers and that there are sort of lurking questions about particularly in the context of, uh, of warfare, the extent to which the executive branch should be able to act independently uh, when Congress has not directly addressed it. That would be another debate, um, but it would be an interesting one, and, and there are good questions there. Okay, well, I'd like to thank both of you. That brings us to the end of the, the questions that were submitted by those in the audience. I do believe we're going to take a few minutes here, if I not mistaken, to allow Steve a chance to talk to us about some of his recent experience. Yes, Professor McAllister, if you could just take a couple of moments here. We know that you've um, spent um, some time in D.C. earlier this fall, and if you could just kind of share with the group some areas of interest to Kansans that are currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I argued in the uh, a death penalty case from Kansas on October 7th, and there are actually three cases. The Attorney General argued as well. Uh, so the two of us covered the cases. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. The uh, Kansas has had the death penalty since 1994. Until last Friday, the Kansas Supreme Court had never upheld a death sentence, had always found a reason why it was invalid. Uh, we've taken more than one of those up to the Supreme Court and, and at least the last time got the Kansas Supreme Court reversed. Actually, a couple of times have gotten them reversed. Uh, the cases I was there for in October, you're probably too young, but if, if you were around and cognizant of events in, in December of 2000, it's the Carr brothers in Wichita, very notorious killers uh, who invaded a home, uh, sexually tortured, abused, raped. Uh, there were three men and two women, took them to ATMs to withdraw money, eventually lined them up in a soccer field naked uh, on their knees and shot each one in the back of the head. Uh, and the question in the case that we took to the Supreme Court was they were tried together. So the same crimes of the brothers, they were tried together. But on the defendant's side, 
They argued that they should have been tried separately because there was prejudice. If one was trying to say the other was the real bad actor, it wasn't so much me, uh, that that just get all confused and the jury would simply lump them together and treat them the same, whether they both deserve the same treatment or not. Uh, and the Kansas Supreme Court agreed that their sentencing should have been separate so that the jury really would have looked at them each in an individual way. Uh, the state has argued in the Supreme Court that the jury was told to look at them individually. There's every indication the jury could and did look at them individually. So just because they were tried together, that shouldn't be a constitutional problem. All of this is Eighth Amendment territory. It flows from cruel and unusual punishment clause uh, in the death penalty context. So that that was the issue. There was another one that I don't know if I can even explain very readily uh, to, to non-capital punishment lawyers. Another issue also present in the cases that had to do with jury instructions. Uh, but, you know, that's an issue for Kansas, I think, the death penalty. We have other issues that are not necessarily the U.S. Supreme Court that are very much in play right now. School finance in Kansas is a huge matter of litigation. It's not federal law. It's all the state constitution that provides for educational funding. Uh, and we're arguing about how much the state has to do there. Uh, argued last Friday a part of it, and we'll argue more in the spring. Uh, there's a big tension, if you will, in Kansas currently between the courts and the legislature in particular. Uh, so there's also a case to be argued in December. The legislature tried to change some of the way the courts do business and basically said if this is invalidated, the courts lose their entire budget. Uh, that creates various issues, separation of powers kinds of arguments. That's going to play out here pretty soon. Uh, and then I mentioned Roe versus Wade. We actually have a lawsuit pending in which the plaintiffs said, we're not going to invoke federal law. We're going to argue the state constitution has a right to abortion uh, in Kansas since 1859, has never recognized a right to abortion under state law. Uh, so that's in play as well. I mean, the bottom line is we are very busy uh, in the Attorney General's office. Uh, we have a legislature that keeps passing laws that people keep suing over and challenging, and it's our job to defend them uh, as best we can. So capital punishment, abortion, relationship between the branches of government, uh, all of that is very much in play in Kansas right now. Well, thank, thank you very much. Uh, we'd like to thank everyone for coming out this evening. Both Professor Rich McAllister have agreed to hang around for a little bit if you'd like to uh, visit with them individually. But that concludes our debate for this evening. Thank you for coming. I don't know that we found